14 new biological drugs were approved by the FDA in 2019. These drugs were either peptidomimetic, antibody, or oligonucleotide scaffolds. It is important to store some of these scaffolds under cold temperatures to preserve their therapeutic function. However, storing under cold temperatures is a challenging supply chain process and adds to the cost of the entity. Our guest today, Dr. Balaji Sridhar, has invented a technology to address this challenge and preserve the function of these biological scaffolds at room temperature. Dr. Balaji V. Sridhar is the CEO and co-founder of Nanoli Bioscience Inc., a life sciences company based in Denver, Colorado. He invented the NanoShield technology to solve the cold challenge while working on his MD-PhD. Nanoli has won numerous awards, including Intel's top social innovation, NASA and Space Frontier Foundation's top 10 new technology companies for space, Airbus's Materials and Manufacturing Award, and an NIH SBIR grant. You can find more information on Nanoli through this podcast and at nanoli.info. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sridhar. I'm very thrilled to have you as one of my early guests on the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Nagambabu. Yeah, this is a great honor. I think what you're doing is great by uh, sharing the stories of scientific entrepreneurship uh, to people around the world. Yeah, thank you. As I was looking into Nanoli, I found a 90-second video. It would be helpful for the audience to hear about Nanoli from you in about a minute or 90 seconds. So yeah, I'd recommend that the list, that your listeners uh, check out our website at, as you mentioned, www.nanoli.info, and you can see the video there. Uh, in short summary, uh, the video is talking about the motivation for why Nanoli started. There are many people worldwide who lack access uh, to life-saving therapeutics such as uh, vaccines or uh, therapeutics. And uh, one of the reasons, um, other than some of the, the costs and, and those things, is the cold chain logistics. Um, you can get to a distribution center, but some uh, people in rural areas or even in urban areas, um, when they're, they aren't stored properly, can't even use these vaccines effectively. Uh, and that was one of the motivations um, for this company. I had this experience in, in Kenya where I, I worked there and, and saw a lot of the power outages and uh, really inspired me to say we need to move away from reliance on, on temperature-based means of storage and we have to find different ways to store some of these life-saving therapeutics uh, so they don't need to be so you don't need to worry about this and hopefully save lives with this as well yeah that's really awesome uh, that is actually going to be my first question but how did you think of making use of polymers to solve this challenge so the the concept is everyone keeps thinking about um, temperature as a variable that you need to prevent uh, proteins from spoiling or, or losing their activity. And I thought, what is, what is the main uh, point of how, how do these uh, proteins denature with high temperatures? And I said, oh, well, the structure actually, uh, the, the, the molecules move around and then they lose their structure and they lose their activity. So what mm -hmm. if you could actually keep them in a 
vice grip, a molecular vice grip, mm-hmm. physically entrapping them in a polymer matrix. And that was the idea um, for how we developed our technology using these polymers. Got it. Yeah, that's very exciting. Um, if I'm correct, you started your company as a grad student? Yes, that is correct. Uh, I started this while working on my PhD. And what are the processes involved in converting a successful research project into a startup? Or was this an entirely separate idea? And yeah, so there, there's always challenges with anything that comes out of an academic lab that seems very interesting uh, to bringing it to the real world. A lot of these challenges involve scale up um, and, 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 and thinking about what value it brings uh, to other people worldwide and, and how easily it can be implemented. Um, and so some of the things that I had to think about the design at the end before I kind of did some of these projects at the beginning. Got it. Um, and yeah, so you have to always think with the end in mind when you start mm-hmm. in the beginning and there's always going to be hurdles along the way. Yeah, that's an exciting thought. And how did you balance grad school and the startup? Um, I, w- I was very fortunate to work with the renowned uh, Howard Hughes medical investigator, Professor uh, Christy Ansep at the University of Colorado at Boulder uh, during my PhD. Um, and actually, my uh, PhD project is on uh, cartilage regeneration using biomaterials. But I had the fortunate chance of also uh, talking to her about this idea, and she would let me uh, you know, work on this as a side project as well, um, using these biomaterials to actually stabilize uh, various uh, protein molecules and therapeutics. And yeah, how did I balance it? It was, uh, luckily, I... I um, I met my co-founder. Uh, this is a story that's actually documented in Forbes, mm-hmm. as well in in uh, in Colorado. Uh, she has a business background. Her name is Nancy Liu. Mm-hmm. Uh, she really helped in pushing forward funding uh, for this project, and I helped in you know figuring out ways that we can uh, bring it forward. And so we had a great dynamic, and that's also one of the ways that. I could balance those two in bringing this company forward. That is awesome. Yeah. Meeting the right people and having the support of your advisor is very important. Would you agree with that? Yes. Yes, totally. As I would say fortunate, but it's, there's a lot of luck, but also, you know, a lot of perseverance in, in making sure that the, uh, that an idea that seems interesting can actually, um, be realized into something that can be applicable. Got it. And did you happen to work with an incubator to develop proof of concept or did you do everything in your PhD lab? Uh, So initially I did some of the work in my PhD lab uh, in Boulder, and then I I did move out to an incubator in Denver, Colorado. It's called the Fitzsimmons Redevelopment Authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, At this incubator, other companies like Sharklet, which are kind of nationally renowned. Uh, and, and in that in- incubator, worked with various bioscience companies and uh, had resources also to the University of Colorado Medical School campus as well to, uh, to help formulate the idea and, and really bring it forward. Um, so initially started in the PhD lab, moved there, uh, and that's how I continued to, to grow the product. Got it. And when did you move there? Like, at what stage of the project? 
so initially we had to make sure that the idea actually worked. So did proof of concept with um, very similar uh, small uh, pilot scale studies using various enzymes saw that we'd actually see a great difference with our polymer technology compared to uh, standard what are called excipients or mm-hmm. uh, and, and we saw the, the great improvement with the use of our technology and after that we said we raised some money and said we can move up to this incubator and really develop it to the next level got it i think in one of the videos you talk about how you raised the temperature to 60 degrees celsius and it was it still worked fine yeah, and those were kind of these accelerated uh, studies. You might not see that in the real world as often, mm-hmm. but just to show that we can even stabilize at temperatures that high, um, you know, we can. You could obviously correlate that to room temperature and other uh, temperatures as well, um, sure. and we can do that in a shorter time. Got it. And running a life sciences startup requires a lot of talent resources and costs a lot, right? And you mentioned that you met your co-founder. How else did you sort of get all the resources and manage costs? Yeah, so my my story is a little different than some of these uh, life science companies coming out of academic labs in the sense that the ideation came to the lab and maybe some of the proof of concept, but um, didn't quite uh, fully developed the product while doing my project. Um, and so initially I, we got funding from business competitions where we came up with a great, we came up with a, a thought, thought out business plan where we laid out the value of this product and, and our exit strategy. Uh, and, and through that we raised non-dilutive funding um, by winning competitions such as at Duke or, some of the ones that you listed earlier. Yeah, that, yeah, that that sounds great. And I'm guessing you do have investors right now. So are they angels, VCs, or collaborators in the biopharma? Uh, a little bit of all all of the above here. Okay. Um, we we did uh, get our seed round. Uh, in addition to those business competition uh, money I told you about, we raised money also from. Uh, venture capital fund and uh, also raised money uh, from the NIH through that uh, SBIR grant and are working with companies uh, throughout the world and, uh, and including in Colorado um, where we have a partnership with an enzyme manufacturing company here that now ships uh, their products, uh, some of their products with uh, with our material and no longer needs uh, dry ice to do that. So you spoke about the NIH SBAR grant. So could you explain a little bit more about that and what is your success strategy for it? Uh, yeah, so the the National Institutes of Health um, offers uh, these non-dilutive funding mechanisms uh, for companies that have technologies that can can help society and help improve the health of society. Um, in this particular grant, we we mentioned how uh, we would be using uh, this project to to not only see the viability of our polymer, uh, do some animal studies as well, 
and working with these other companies to show that we can, um, you know, make, make actually manufacturing in the U.S. more competitive uh, compared to other countries because now you no longer need uh, to ship enzymes with dry ice. So it'd be less cost and more effective because you no longer need to worry about storing it on ice as well. Um, and so uh, my my message to the listeners there is you have to be persistent on these grants. Um, it might take might take a few rounds uh, mm-hmm. before you can convince them to have basically a new idea that's not been seen because this is seen by multiple people on committees. Got it. Um, and you kind of reformulate every time uh, based on that feedback. And and I would recommend even if you don't think you have a great idea, you would or it's not fully teased out, I would still recommend submitting it mm-hmm. and working on that feedback uh, and really working with that program officer um, to, to help with that feedback. Yeah, I think that's very useful information. You mentioned that you've, you're working with a company in Denver to ship their enzymes. So are your customers primarily biopharma companies or do you have plans to directly sell it to pharmacies? Yeah, so our, uh, I guess our product has now become what's called an excipient. So it's an inactive ingredient that you add to the active ingredient of a drug that it really stabilizes it. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that, we have realized that working with manufacturers of drugs or therapeutics is, is the best way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our customers are indeed, like you mentioned, manufacturers of these enzymes uh, and drugs. And mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, and the value uh, that we add is that uh, even compared to legacy systems such as uh, freeze drying, uh, mm-hmm. you can use our technology to uh, to stabilize components in a faster period of time with less mm-hmm. of the damaging effects. And you don't have to worry about those temperature excursions like you do with freeze-dried products. So, um, you know, those, those are kind of those are kind of the big values that our t- technology adds, and um, hence why our customers are those uh, companies that use technologies such as freeze-drying. Got it. And what is the regulatory pathway for these excipients? Yeah. So for any for excipients, uh, you generally have to, you know, going through the FDA uh, for any new drug, you would have to go through a phase one through three trial. But uh, with any new product, uh, the, the idea being that this is a um, this is just an added part of a formulation to that mm-hmm. drug. Mm-hmm. But uh, in our case, the best way to get uh, into the good graces of everything is to uh, to consider ourselves a grass product or generally recognized as safe. And this is done through animal testing that has already been laid out by the FDA showing there's no toxicity, no uh, maximum tolerated doses are uh, lead to no toxicity in animals, very safe. And then, you know, five years of the product in the market, which was with various types of formulations uh, mm-hmm. shows that there's been no effects also in, in patients, um, and then that's how you get generally recognized as safe and on the FDA inactive list. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you um, then you can try to be combined with other compounds. 
Got it. And your initial focus was on vaccines. And I looked up your website and it indicates that NanoShield can be applicable to other scaffolds as well. So have you tried and tested with other scaffolds? So if yes, when did you go beyond vaccines? Yeah, so what, what we realized uh, is that there, there are a lot of, uh, you know, vaccines out there and, um, but there's a lot that currently exist. And uh, what we saw is that our technology doesn't just work with protein-based vaccine, but works with stabilizing viruses to small compounds as small as peptides to, uh, you know, as big as like adenovirus with gene delivery. And, mm-hmm. and so we found that if we package this as an excipient versus as just uh, focusing on packaging it with uh, one vaccine, uh, that, that we could have more broad applicability and, uh, you know, easier way to get our product into the market. Uh, and, and so that's kind of we decided to diversify, especially after we saw um, great results with various different biologic molecules. Cool. That sounds great. And it's now about eight years since NanoLeva started. So what are some of the ecstatic moments in this journey? Yeah, thank, thank you for bringing this up. Yeah, it's actually been about eight years to this day that the uh, idea um, was formulated. It was early, mm-hmm. late 2011, early 2012 that the idea okay. came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, what, I, what I've learned in this journey, um, you have to have a lot of persistence. Uh, you have to be able to know when to run lean, uh, meaning like know how to be productive even with low resources. And then when you do have resources, know how to use them to effectively uh, market your uh, technology and, and bring it to, uh, and bring it to the customer. And the other thing I should mention is, yeah, I've really learned a lot about what the customer needs. And that's, that's kind of the disconnect some of us have from in academia where I came from to the entrepreneur side is, all that matters in the end is the value add and, w- and what the uh, the customer wants. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different thinking style than to continue to pursue something that seems interesting. And so uh, devoting the resources to, uh, you know, those projects that bring it, bring the greatest value to the, the customers is what I've learned uh, the most mm-hmm. uh, from this journey. And yeah. And the perseverance, as I mentioned, is, uh, you know, it's it, it, it was really great in learning, even through all the uh, tribulations, to learn from them and to move forward. I think it was it's a great privilege to also have been in in those experiences as well. Got it. And you you've used the word perseverance quite a bit. So were there any disappointments? How did you overcome them? Uh, yeah, there there were um, there were quite a few. The uh, you know initially uh, we were very excited with these results with the polymer that I mentioned, but um, even from the manufacturing stage, you know you you realize that really matters who is manufacturing uh, the polymer or who is uh, you know on the larger scale, and there were issues with how they made it and they didn't make it up to specifications and, mm-hmm. uh, and 
and at those times you can have really big setbacks on everything that you planned um and and then you then you try to reformulate the polymer and we have since then to make it even more easy uh to use and synthesize and, and that was one of those learning steps that we did that uh you really have to be careful of every step and pay attention to even those little details that you might not have your control over um, that mm -hmm. can derail some things and just have to keep that in mind. And, and if you keep pushing forward, it, uh, you can still get over those hurdles. Got it. And uh, because we are talking about polymers, does the PDI matter? Like, should you have an uh, PDI? Yes, yes, that polydispersity index uh, uh, does matter in, in terms of kind of the molecular weight and, you know, you do get a range of weights um, with that PDI, but uh, what we've seen is even with one formulation with an average molecular weight in a, in a certain range, we, we still see that effect with various biologic molecules, which has it's been great to see and, and knowing that we can even tune that to uh, to different sizes um, for different molecules uh, and even in part even um, greater stability is also really exciting uh, to see but yeah there are things that matter such as you mentioned pdi how much of the uh, synthesis was you know fully completed and the purity mm -hmm. of the compound a lot of things that quality that you need to think about as well got it and one final question where do you see nanoly in the next five to ten years yeah, thank uh, you know, thank you for that question. I think um, the biggest the biggest goal that I've seen after you know, these eight years in this journey is that, uh, um, that some of these systems that we have developed from the '50s, '60s, they while they are very innovative, they still cause some uh, some problems. Like uh, in the case of freeze drying, a cake collapse or even spray drying uh, mm -hmm. damage to proteins and such, and so. What I hope to see with Nanoly is that we can replace some of these legacy systems, uh, such as lyophilization. Uh, Got it. it it'll be um, easier to use, cheaper to use. You can produce, manufacture your products in a faster period of time. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't need to wait overnight. And, uh, and that, yeah, you no longer have to worry about dry ice. Um, <laughs> you can just take these out of the uh, you know, a cardboard box and use them when you're ready to use them, store them wherever. Don't have to worry about rolling blackouts. Um, and in the case of clinical applications, yep. don't have to worry about an ice box. It's now ready to go. And that is where I hope to see Nanoly's product being used um, like that worldwide. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, I'd definitely love to probably re-enroll myself in a PhD and do research without bothering about the quality of enzymes, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, I wish you and team Natalie all the best in your endeavors. And it is a pleasure talking to you about your journey as part of Natalie. Thank you, Balaji. Yes. Thank you so much uh, for having me as a guest. It was a true honor.